1: so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
0: It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I've got an outstanding guest for you today, Don Joseph Goey. Don, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me on.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation here. And listeners, uh, we're about to have a really deep, meaningful conversation Uh, about a lot of topics, but definitely stress being one of them. And as we get into this, the things I want you to know about Don uh, is that he is the director of the Center for Spiritual Exchange, the official archive for the works of Anthony DeMello, regarded as one of the great spiritual minds of the 20th century, influencing the likes of Eckhart Tolle and Thomas More. Don Goey recently added a new book published by Simon & Schuster entitled Stop Fixing Yourself, Wake Up, All Is Well, based on Anthony DeMello's practical spirituality. He is also the author of the Amazon bestseller, The End of Stress, Four Steps to Rewire Your Brain. He has committed his life to helping people understand and quiet stress and anxiety, navigate life's challenges more creatively, and live happier, more fulfilled lives. Don, that is an outstanding resume and sense of purpose there. Um, And I really am looking forward to hearing how you answer the first question that I ask all of my guests on this show. When you hear the term responsible leadership, what does that mean to you?
1: Oh, it means uh, a person uh, who facilitates joy, and connection and creativity in the people that um, he's responsible for. Mm,
0: I like that, I like that a lot. Um, yeah, wow, that, that, is, uh, that is a good definition of that. I, I've not actually heard that one before. Well, you know, those three qualities are what
1: they, they facilitate, those three qualities, joy, connection, creativity, they facilitate engagement. And companies that do that to facilitate engagement, they tend to be twice as successful as com- companies who crack the whip and you know use uh, coach people in ways that tear them down rather than
0: build them up. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. It, it makes a whole lot of sense. I've just never heard it put together like that. And and I think uh, you may have just taken the top spot as my new favorite answer to to that <laughs> question. So. um yeah, so I'm really curious, you know, with your your background and and some of the things that you've been associated with, um, you know, how did you kind of get into this this world of of uh, neuroscience and spirituality?
1: Yeah, it's quite a crossword right now that we're we're seeing that where neuroscience, psychology, and, and Spirituality, and by that I don't mean necessarily religion, but a practical spirituality that leads to a more fulfilling life. Well, they've all converged. They're all on the same page, finally. Um, they're all they're all basically providing proof of one another. And uh, I call it psycho-spirituality. And I came into it the hard way. Um, years ago, I experienced what you might call a perfect storm of stress. I lost an executive a level job I had at Stanford University Medical School that I had devoted a decade or more climbing the career ladder to reach. And nine days after losing my job, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor that the doctors warned was going to leave me seriously disabled, maybe potentially unable to ever work again. And, you know, I was married at the time, had four children, and my marriage was in trouble, you know, basically because my main focus wasn't so much on the family as it was on my, my career. Uh, you know, I was trying to be a really good breadwinner and it was coming at the expense of, of, you know, nurturing my family with time and, and, uh, you know, a more, more of an open heart, less, less of a stress mind bringing home, which is what I was bringing home. Well, you know, losing my job, being diagnosed with a brain tumor suddenly made my life feel like it was coming apart at the seams. And it seemed there was absolutely nothing I could do to stop this impending catastrophe. And I had to wait six weeks for the surgery before I could line myself up with the best surgeon around. And for the first two weeks, uh, it was really emotionally painful. You know, I was ruminating about what was going to happen to me. Um, you know, it was like, it was like walking through a nightmare. Every night I would wake up at three in the morning and stare out the window into the cold, dark night. And it looked like, uh, you know, a black hole of oblivion that was about to suck me and my family into it and feeling terrified by what was going to happen. Because, um, you know, it seemed like we we're going to end up homeless. It's, you know, it was a real possibility. Right. Then one night, two weeks into this turmoil, this excruciating pain, I reached a point where some part of me seriously questioned which was worse. You know, the dire problems the doctors predicted that might happen to me out there in the future, or the abject fear that was happening to me every day, all day long for the last two weeks. And the answer was was clear to me. You know, the, the fear I was in was worse. It was bone chilling. Um, you know, it was consuming me. And I recognized it was depleting the, the strength that I, that I needed to get through whatever I had to get through, whatever was coming my way. And so for the next half hour, I used a process that I had learned from, from a holy man, actually, um, but had never really used very much. I'd actually taught it to other people when they were in distress, but I, I never really used it on myself. But I remembered how to do it since I'd been teaching it and it involved being diligently aware of every fearful, painful, depressing thought that I was thinking and feeling and to be willing to, to feel it, to really feel it, to let it come up, to observe the thoughts that were driving these emotional reactions I was having, this doom I was experiencing and beginning to understand them as these thoughts and feelings as happening in me not necessarily to me and even moving towards the another step in it that not only happening in me but they were happening for me in some way that I didn't understand and um, so I did that I practiced that way I let it come up and at first I thought you know what would happen is that you know, the fear would come up, and and then it, I would move through it very quickly. It, well, to my surprise, the amount of fear that I had been suppressing and holding down and trying to contain just suddenly blew up in my face, and I was overwhelmed. And I have a grandson who's, who's quite a good surfer, and he tells me that, you know, when you catch a wave out, of, out on the Pacific uh, Ocean, and it's a big wave. He said, there's no turning back. You know, you got to ride it all the way into shore. And the fear is it's going to overwhelm you and it's going to pull you to the bottom and drown you. Well, that's kind of like what I the way the predicament I was in, I just had to ride this fear out. And to my great relief, it deposited me on shore. You know, I wrote it out. It began to dissipate, it began to quiet down. I began to quiet down, and I experienced the first relief I had been experiencing not only in the last two weeks since I had been diagnosed, but in a long time. And so, over the course of the next hour, you know, that fear would come up. The critical voice in my head would say, You know, you can practice this process all you want but you're still screwed at the end of the day, you're still gonna be screwed. You're still gonna face brain surgery and all of that. And then the fear would rise and I would process it again and I'd be delivered to shore. And eventually it deposited me on a shore which I recognized I was at peace and I knew I was at peace because when I looked out that window that at the beginning of this session, you know, I was looking into the black hole of oblivion, everything had changed. And what I was seeing was, you know, it was a full moon night and the, the moon was shim, moonlight was shimmering on the oak leaves of this beautiful oak tree that was in front of our property. And I just gave into it completely into that feeling of peace. And I decided right then and there that whatever I had to face each and every day as I approached surgery, and even after surgery, I was going to choose to let go of fear and anxiety and the stress that, that, that may arise in this way of allowing myself to become aware of it by feeling what I was feeling to recognize that this was happening in me. It was, it was tied to the thoughts I was thinking. It was also tied to the emotional memory of traumas from my past. It was all, it was all orchestrated within me, um, that, that the brain tumor that not, not being employed, those, those were actually facts. They were neutral. Um, my reaction to them was what was causing me suffering. I could really clearly, I got that. I really clearly got that. Once, first time in my life, I really got that. And so I did. And, you know, during, I had to go back to work, um, for, for a month at Stanford, you know, even though I'd been discharged. They, you know, my golden parachute was tied to uh, finishing up a project. And I was a completely different person when I went back to work. You know, I thought there were people that were my enemies that led to my demise there. And I began to recognize maybe, you know, it was quite likely I was misperceiving them. You know, they were just being themselves. They were just hustling for their survival, just like I had been. Um, I was able to approach my work. It was a major project I had to finish, and I could ferret out what I could get done in a month and what I and get done well, and what I I wouldn't get done, and what would hold me back from doing it well. And I just leaned into that and did a really good job on the project. And I, my my mood was was really positive, and uh, you know, reported to surgery and to to my great delight the surgery was a complete success. Uh, it actually made the doctor famous. He, he used a, a new approach to removing this tumor and he removed it completely. And, and without any collateral damage to other parts of my brain, that was a big worry. Cause it was in one of those areas where, uh, if there was collateral damage from the surgery, it was going to leave, leave me in um, a mess in a mess. Um, and so, um, you know, if I would have talked to neuro—this is back in 1986—and if I would have talked to neuroscientists at Stanford during that time, you know, that long ago, and said, "Do you think my shift in attitude, um, my sh- my process of shifting fear, made a difference in the outcome?" They would have said, "Oh, that's nonsense. That's sippy nonsense." <laughs> you know, they—you know—the you know—you know, you just got lucky. But what we know now, it's definitively established with medical science. Uh, this thing called the mind body connection, right. your state of mind, um, determines a great deal of what, of how well you live and, and, and how healthy you become and, and how things turn out for you and how things don't turn out for you, depending on your, on your attitude. And so it was, it was, uh, a, a life changing, thing for me, you know, that started out is the worst thing that could have happened to me in my life. It was actually the best thing that happened to me. And that was where I finally understand that part of it's not happening to me. It's happening in me and it's happening for me to wake me up. And and so, you know, I stayed at Stanford for a few more years. But um, oh, <laughs> I forgot this piece. I got my job back, not in that <laughs> nice. department. But I got it. I got uh, the, the chairman of the department of psychiatry, which is what better fit for me. Anyway, he had heard about this guy going through this catastrophe with this incredible attitude, you know, and, um, and he, he called me up and asked me if I would come over an in interview for, for his, uh, his COO job, which was open at the time. And he offered me the job and, um, he said he he needed my attitude, uh, on on his godforsaken team, as he put <laughs> it, and I said, well, I don't know how this surgery is going to turn out. And he he he, as a psychiatrist, he did understand the mind body connection before it, even before medicine understood it. And he said, you're going to be fine. You keep you keep up with that attitude, you're going to be fine. And so I worked with him. His name was Tom Gonda, very famous guy, wonderful man. And uh, after. He actually died. And after he died, I decided this is really not the place where I belong. I want to go out there and work in this burgeoning field, this field that eventually developed into what I now call psycho spirituality. And I ended up working, directing an institution called the Center for Attitudinal Healing that used spiritual principles and a mix of spiritual principles and uh person centered psychology to help people say face some of the most stressful things anybody face faces, you know, from people that are facing AIDS or life threatening illnesses to parents who'd lost children to we worked with prisoners serving life sentences. The Clinton administration even sent us off into Croatian, Bosnia during that genocidal war to work with work with uh refugees who had who'd lost everything and were subjected to a really severe post-traumatic stress because of what had happened to them. And, um, and the work we did, it was an incredible group of people and the work that we did there really made a difference in people's lives. Um, and it all goes back to the person making that difference. We didn't make the difference in their lives. We just gave them a chance of, of seeing their situation differently, just like what had happened to me. And, and then empowering themselves. It all comes down to choices we ourselves make. And for our success, the American Medical Association awarded us the the, uh, Excellence in Medicine Award back in 2005. And then after that, I went to work in corporations uh, helping to, to teach people how to transcend stress and elevate their experience of work. Um, and then recently, I've been working as a consultant to the Center for Spiritual Exchange, so that's how I got into this field.
0: No, that is uh, an amazing story, and thank you for sharing that journey with us, and and you know being, uh, you know uh, being being authentic and transparent with that because that that is an amazing story, and and you know you owned up to a, a a lot of things there, and I think that's the the key is is people being able to come to grips with it, but. You know, as as you were talking, I was reminded a lot of uh, you know. I wouldn't call myself a scholar by any stretch, but I'm a fan of of the Stoics and uh, the the old Epictetus quote that says, "Men are disturbed not by things, but the view of which they take of them." Um, and it, it sounds like that was a big piece of your journey. Was nothing really changed in your life circumstantially, but your view of those things changed, and it, it led to better outcomes. But you mentioned some of the the work you you've done, uh, you know, with with the stress and, and people in in uh, high danger situations. Uh, I'm curious, um, have you are are you aware of any of the uh, the the multitude of studies and work that's been done uh, with the uh, the the former prisoners of the Hanoi Hilton?
1: Um. Yes.
0: Yeah. Um, because, as you were t- telling your story and sharing some of those thoughts there back in, I want to say it was episode four of this show. So almost two hundred episodes ago, um, I had Colonel Lee Ellis on here, and uh, you know he was talking about their experiences as as a POW and, and a lot of the the principles that uh, Admiral Stockdale uh, kind of imparted amongst them and this you know kind of this is. You know this is happening. Uh, you know in me, I have this control. That kind of basic tenet of Stoic philosophy—that you know my life is up to me and the choices I make, not so much what everybody else does. About how that was such a key piece of of their survival, and what you—that last piece you mentioned, how you know this this point of turmoil in my life is actually one of the best things that happened to me. You know, that's kind of their mindset, right? Yeah, nobody wanted to be in Vietnam, get shot down, taken prisoner, tortured, all those good things. But when you look at the success rate of those folks, you know, they went on to be senators. They went on to be Fortune 500 CEOs. They went on to be judges. They went on, you know, almost every one of them went on to be very highly successful people going through a situation where, you know, the the federal government, when they were coming home. Was briefing their families. These guys are probably going to be in a near vegetative state because of the trauma they went through, and they were shocked that these folks come out kind of with your attitude, right? They came back on fire. They learned things. They started businesses. They they achieved great success. So yeah, um, you know that goes back. You know, starting with Epictetus and all the way to Hanoi Hilton to your story. You know, this stuff has thousands of years of proven track record behind it, doesn't it? Yeah, the truth is the truth. You yeah.
1: know, I, I, I once saw, uh, an interview with one of the POWs from Vietnam on television. And the man said, uh, uh, what, when he came back, one of the things that, uh, surprised him is what most people thought of as a crisis. And he said, given his, he measured it against being, uh, Trapped in a tiny little cage box and being beaten every day to he he considered that a crisis and compared to uh, Somebody who spilled (laughs) cats up on their tie, you know, and gets all upset about it Um, You know the Victor Frankel is another example, you know, he was a he, he was in a second Freudian school. His life looked like it was headed in a wonderful direction. And then the Nazis rolled in and he was a Jew. And he was just recently married. And he and his wife were taken into custody, were shipped off to separate concentration camps. His wife died in the concentration camp. And he, um, he ended up in Auschwitz. And because he was a doctor, um, the inmates came to him. And, uh, he, he, you know, he would, the best he could do is if he had a couple of aspirins or give, but one of the things he observed is that, that he could predict who was going to live and die, but by, by what happened to their attitude, mm-hmm. if their attitude began to go into in, uh, in decline, and it seemed to be uh, a strong trajectory in that direction, um, he would predict to himself, he said, they're bound to die, and he would try to talk them up. And if he didn't talk them up, sure enough, they would die. And he came to the conclusion after all of the horrendous, horrendous experiences that he went through in Auschwitz, he came to the conclusion, which is now a very famous statement, is that when you find yourself, um, in a situation that you can't change, then you're challenged to change yourself. Yeah. And I, I, you know, when I when I coach people who are um, upset and worried and anxious and uh, having difficulty with with the epidemic, um, I I usually tell them that story about Frankel, and I give them that that quote is, you know, the all, you know sometimes the last freedom that you have is your attitude to choose your own way to choose your own attitude. And it doesn't matter what situation you're in—Auschwitz, POW camp, a refugee of the Bosnian War—I—I um, I saw people do heroic, uh, make heroic shifts in their attitude um, that you know I don't know that I could make myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and they be, you know, that that's the interesting thing about life is that, um, particularly, you know, if you get to be in a position of being a teacher is you understand that you know three three out of four times you really the student you know right. you really the person you throw out an idea out there and then you it turns out that the person you're supposed to be teaching is really teaching you uh, by virtue of their own personal experience or by virtue of a shift a dramatic shift that they're able to make and you know what we're talking about here really is the power of, of spiritual resilience. You know, when we lean into our spirit, our spiritual self, when we lean into our health, our heart, when we turn and shift directions from letting the outside define define us and make the shift inward and open up our hearts, you know, and sometimes it's opening up our hearts to the reality that this world we live in is full of beauty and it's full of horror. You know, they, 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 they seem to oppose each other. Um and when but when you open your heart to both, um you find your way. When you close your heart, uh you cast yourself into suffering. You cast you cast yourself into um usually being a victim. So the challenge is always to make that turn inwardly and inwardly in a way that opens your heart and inwardly in a way that opens your awareness to what it is that's going on inside of you. You know, where is your suffering coming from? What, what is the nature of your suffering? And that just simply means, are you willing to feel what you're feeling and really feel it and, and come to understand it, uh, understand that it really is happening in you. It's a, it's a way in which your culture has programmed you in a lot of ways. It's a way in which your past traumas are, are ruling you. And that even in the midst of that situation, even in the midst of that emotional upset, you still have the, ca- the capacity uh, to find happiness, to move yourself in the direction of happiness. Happiness is happiness is what you are, just like love is what you are, just like peace is what you are. Uh, you have it already. It's in your very nature. It's not only the mystics that tell us that scientists is proving it to us. And yet the thing that we're, we're discovering is that even though, uh, you know, we have it, we don't know it. Only 4% of the population uh, can, can honestly say they are completely happy. Um, and, the, and that's in the face of that irony that we were born happy. You know, we're born free, but we've become trapped in limited thinking. We're born with an open heart that stress and fear so easily close. We're born Gifted beings of immeasurable worth, but we often feel like we're not good enough. You know, we were We're caught in shame in shame reactions that have been programmed into us, you know, by parents and teachers and bosses and uh, and even by our own religion and yet at the same time there is this divinity of joy within us surrounding us there to make our life meaningful and beautiful and rich but we become blocked from seeing it you know it's as if we're all hypnotized to see what's not there and not see what is there and so you know basically uh how did how that happened to us is it got stamped into us um society programmed all that happiness all that worth all that unlimited ability out of us, stamping into us through the belief that happiness and self-worth are found out there in the world. And if we work long and hard, success will come, you know, and out of that happiness and fulfillment will follow. Uh, my mother, who was an entrepreneur and a very successful businessman, she lived like that, you know, and she achieved great success but she never achieved happiness. She's always looking for it in the next success. So, you know, we've all swallowed that formula. And 10 years later, we realize that success has come, but without fulfillment. You know, Tony Robbins says that success without fulfillment, that's the ultimate failure in life. That's failing at life. So waking up is a realization that contrary to what society has taught us, nothing but absolutely nothing of the world can make us unhappy or make us happy. That's in us and success, you know, is important, of course, but success is not the same as fulfillment. Fulfillment doesn't come from the world. Happiness doesn't come from the world, not the radiant happiness you see in a child that we all experience spontaneously when we were children, that's constant, you know, that makes you smile for no reason, that makes you jump in with both feet to any kind of creative project, you know, that has the resilience of a child that when you get knocked down and you cry, you bounce back up as soon as somebody dangles something interesting in front of you, you know, and the truth is, that there's not a single moment in a person's life when they really don't have everything they need to be happy. The only reason we're ever unhappy is because we're focusing on what we don't have rather than on what we have right here, right now. And you know, you make that shift towards counting your blessings, towards a shift to being, to opening up to being grateful for what you do have, and suddenly you're in a whole new world. You can be in a pessimistic, moaning, um, victim sort of state of mind. And you just go through that simple process of counting your blessings, of really remembering the love that's in your life, the wealth that's in your life, the good things that are coming your way. When you begin to do that, suddenly you're seeing a different world. It's because you're in a different world. And this new book that, that I helped edit by uh, taking, um, the, the work of Anthony DeMello. It's called Stop Fixing Yourself. Um it helps us rediscover that truth about ourselves
0: yeah no I I again, I loved everything you just said there and it was it was one of those things uh when you were talking about that life process uh talking about ancient wisdom it was one of the things my grandfather uh, used to always say uh you know whenever he would see people crying at a funeral, he said, you know he said we've got this process all messed up I said, what's that he said, "We should be crying when somebody's born and be happy when they pass away." He said, basically what you said. He goes, "When we're born, he goes, that's the happiest we're going to be. Life kicks in after that, and it's all downhill from there. Yeah, when we die, so right. it's the it's the end of the journey. You've made it. We should be happy for you." And uh, yeah, uh, again, ancient wisdom, right? It's like i would never really thought of it that way, but I agree. Yeah, he, he's absolutely right, and but as you mentioned right you know yes society is engineered that way to to really kind of make us focus on the negative you know we the keeping up with the joneses it doesn't matter i've got a two car garage my neighbor's got three i've only got one car but now i want four garages i'll do something with that extra one right why why is it we always focus on what we don't have and how can we get to that point? Because I agree with you, right? I, I tell people this all the time. It's like, look, success isn't your bank account. Success isn't your job title. Success is, do you feel happy? Do you feel comfortable? Are you are you feeling fulfilled in your life? But how do we get people to really kind of flip that switch to to be okay taking that $20,000, $30,000 pay cut to move somewhere where they're going to be happy and have a fun life and, and, you know, be able to to come home and not have their, their family wish that they were still at work?
1: Well, it goes back to the, the way society programmed us. I love what your grandfather said. Um, you know, we've been programmed to upset ourselves when life doesn't go the way our programming demands it, sh- it should in terms of how the world should be. Uh, for example, you want to be, here's a prescription for unhappiness. There shouldn't be any epidemics. <laughs> well, <laughs> if, if that's uh, the way, guess what? Re, re, in reality, there are epidemics. The problem isn't so much in the epidemic as it is in the way you're rel- relating to a problem. So, you know, it's our programming demands. It's how the world should be, who we should be and what we should want. And you free yourself from that oppressive fear of failing, um, through, through awareness. Um, and it's awareness of, you know, it's really important to get aware of what you're, you're attached to, uh, because that's what our programming's done. It's facilitated in us an attachment to the very things you're talking about attachment to material things, attachment to material success, attachment to getting the right. You know, falling in love with the right person. We're, we're attached to so many different things and attachment is, is defined. And this is the way Anthony DeMello defines it. He defines it as an emotional state of clinging. Caused by the belief that without this thing or this person or this result or getting this outcome, you cannot be happy. And at some point, you know, I invite your listeners to write down at the top of a piece of paper the phrase, I cannot be happy unless or until. I cannot be happy unless or until. And then fill in the blank. People will be surprised how many things come up. And, you know, keep it. You all you have to do is keep it current, but you might have some long-term ones and you could throw those in too. So for example, I cannot be happy unless my boss appreciates me. I hear that a lot. Or I cannot be happy until I'm out of debt. I hear that a lot too. Yeah. Or I cannot be happy until the pandemic is over. I cannot be happy until I'm not neurotic anymore. You know, what should I say to people is good luck with that. <laughs> you know, anything that's true for you, then look the list over and consider that these thoughts, these beliefs block your natural state of happiness. That state of happiness your grandfather was referring to that we're, that we're born into. that we're, That's a part of our spiritual DNA and the way in which we come into this world that, that gets beaten out of us. That we, get, we get it programmed out of us. Look what happens to a child. By the time they're out of kindergarten, they've lost their spontaneity. They've lost their their creativity. They're moving in the direction of of wanting approval and acceptance of their classmates at the expense of of, you know, feeling their own autonomy, feeling their own worth. So I, I invite people, make that list. Spend some time seeing each thing you cling to for what it really is, which is, a kind of nightmare that causes you excitement and pleasure on the one hand, if you get it, but also worry and insecurity and tension and anxiety and fear and unhappiness on the other. If you don't get it, or even if you do get it, I can't tell you what I used to be in the nonprofit world and somebody would write a big check donation check. My first thought would be that's great, but where's the next one coming from? You know, we all have that kind of, response, like things are going really well today, but what's waiting for me around the corner, We that's been programmed into this. So I invite people to do it, do it. And um, and so the question becomes, well, how do we make that transition? How do we actually transcend uh, all this programming? And how do we deprogram ourselves? And the answer is awareness awareness and i just mean simply awareness being aware when you're stressing for example of what you were thinking that led to the emotion and what is the emotion it led to and allowing that to come up and then noticing how you judge yourself for that like oh i shouldn't be that way you know i should be more i should be more enlightened or or how it it turns how it It uh, exacerbates into a whole story that you're telling yourself. Just follow it. Be aware of it. Because, you know, what you're aware of, you begin to control. And what you're unaware of, of course, is going to control you. So again, it's enough for you to simply be watchful and aware, similar to what I was describing in my own story. And through that, all this neurotic within you, all that neurotic programming that's been uh, stamped into you, will begin to drop and you'll begin to wake up in the same way I did. You you'll ride that that wave of emotion that's been um, subjugating you and tyrannizing you. You'll ride that wave all the way into shore. And once you do that, you know, it's this is process of being aware, reminding yourself this is happening in me, not to me. Uh, out of that, you'll pass into to a, a place of watching it pass. You'll begin to understand the truth of all things pass on this planet. All things, especially emotion, your emotional state. You can't even remember what your emotional state was yesterday, let alone an hour ago. They pass, they come and go. So once you let it pass, you're now like you've arrived. You The wave has come to shore. And now what you do is you step up on shore and you just relax and let everything go. And what you will notice is that what arises all by itself, Without any effort from on your part, um, will be a feeling of contentment, a feeling that will grow into a feeling of peace, a a feeling of self satisfaction that will grow into a feeling of worth, a feeling of excitement that will grow into, to happiness. You'll watch it and you continue to do this for two or three weeks. You'll begin to see how this really works for you and there's nothing more motivating for a human being than good results. And you'll see the good results in terms of how you're being with people. Just like when I went back to work, when I was at Stanford, I suddenly was being differently with people. I said, you know, the people hadn't changed. I had changed. As DeMello says, you know, we don't see people and events as they are. We see them as we are. And as you begin to make that shift and that change, you're suddenly looking at a different world. A world that you were always hoping would be there at the end of your success or the end of reaching your attachment of having a three-car garage filled with Ferraris or whatever it is (laughs) your dream is there, Um, you begin to realize that 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 beauty that you're looking for is the beauty of your own true nature, your own spiritual nature that's always been there, you know? you you've been enlightened unsuspectingly the whole time and that's where you know the subtitle to this book wake up all as well you begin to understand all is well all is yeah. well when i am you know when right. i am
0: now uh because you obviously have a much uh you know broader and deeper understanding of this this topic than than i do but you know i i can hear my listeners right now you know that That's great advice uh, for for most people. But, you know, there are people with certain mental health issues, you know, bipolar disorder, things like that. They have chemical imbalances that, that kind of play in that that don't necessarily make this impossible, but it makes them a lot makes it a lot harder for them to go through this process that that people do need to still be aware that, you know, they may be trying to do this, but there's other things at play rather than just being able to talk themselves through it, that, you know, they do need professional help. They do need to seek that type of, of, uh, comfort. Right.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we're all disabled. I think, we. Should, I think it's a good starting point to realize, uh, we've got this, we have this perfection within us, but as we incarnate into this world, um, Uh, you know, we begin to manifest a lot of imperfection. And those imperfections, um, you know, they're not our fault at all. Uh, Even to the extent when we buy into, you know, my my success and happiness and fulfillment comes from the world, even when we buy into that, that's not our fault. We were programmed into it. Uh, You know, it's no more our fault than somebody who was born without legs or somebody who was born with with their brain chemistry messed up and their brain connections messed up. And so their brains misfiring and causing these, uh, psychological disorders and they, they do need help. But I would rec, I always recommend the people, uh, that they read, uh, Carl Rogers and, and in particularly Carl Rogers book on becoming a person. Uh, he's one of the greatest psychologists that ever lived. He's, uh, and in fact, he, he uh, Anthony Newmiller was trained under him, mm. and um, you know one of the things that Carl Rogers said is that in an attitudinal climate where there's unconditional positive regard, where there's em- being extended to a person in distress, where there's empathy and acceptance of that person being being extended to that person, and the person doing the extending is being their real self, they're not putting on any roles, uh, putting on any airs you know, they're being their authentic self, when those three attitudes are present, empathy, unconditional, positive regard, and authenticity, that the conditions for healing are present. And of course, uh, people, and he studied people who had serious mental illness. And, um, you know, there's this wonderful book, oh, I can't remember the name of it. But at any rate, I, I happened to meet the psychiatrist who wrote this book and his patient. And the patient that uh, this man had in his care was institutionalized. She was catatonic. Um, She was so catatonic that when they ushered her into the psychotherapy room to meet with her psychotherapist uh, after an hour, she drooled so much that the fold in her dress between her legs was full of was full of saliva. Mm -hmm. You know, she, she was pretty far gone and the, the psychotherapist, the psychoanalyst, he was reduced, his skill level was reduced down to um, not being able to do anything more than to just love this person unconditionally. And he did that with this person, I think it, it was for a number of years, two or three years, he was that patient with this person and you know, that this person was that debilitated and it, right. it would take that long with her. And she emerged from her catatonia. She not only emerged from her catatonia, she went on to get a master's degree in nursing and is now working in psychiatric institutions, helping people face with 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 the issue that she had. And so, you know, we, 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 we may say, um, the possibilities that are resident within us that, you know, as Jesus said, you know, in that story about the mustard seed, if we had the simple faith of a mustard seed, which, you know, is, is a a mustard plant is kind of a lowly plant on the hierarchy of plants. And yet that little seed can cover an entire mountain, <laughs> an entire hillside. Um, it's happening here in California. Yeah. And, and, and it's gloriously beautiful and yellow and the birds, the birds nest in it, you know, because it's cool underneath all of that. And he said, if you had the faith of that little seed, of what that seed could do to a hillside, he said, you could say to that mountain over there, move to over here and that mountain would move for you. Well, that's what that, so people will say, well, well, how do we do that? Well, the story of this woman and this psychiatrist is an example of that. That's how they move the mountain. And so, you know, there are when people say, oh, we can't really do that. We can't really be fearless. We can't really live from peace. We can't really choose uh, to see somebody as fearful and in need of love when they are attacking us. Uh, we can't really do those kinds of things. Only the saints and mystics can do that. And I see you're limiting yourself. You're, li- you're limiting what all the mystics are telling you is in you. It's the same thing that's in them. And that's what I say to people about that, and I believe that with all my heart.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I agree as well. We are, we are our own biggest uh, governor to our our abilities there. So, uh Don, this has been a fantastic conversation. I can't believe we've already crossed forty five minutes here, and I feel like we literally just started. Um But I, I'm curious with everything we have talked about already, you know, I think we've talked a lot about some of the tenants of stop, uh, stop fixing yourself and touched on some of the pieces of uh, the end of stress. Um, is there anything that you really want to leave listeners with uh, at the end of this show uh, that we haven't covered yet?
1: Yeah, it kind of relates to what I just said, um, which is that what I'm talking about here, what Anthony DeMello is talking about here, what all the mystics are unanimous about, is that letting go of your attachments, letting go of this idea that your happiness comes from the outside world, it's not about renouncing the material world at all. One uses the material world and one enjoys the material world, but doesn't doesn't make one's happiness depend on the material world. And the irony is when you are detached from the material world, as you pursue your success, as you, you pursue the things you want in your life, you actually enjoy the process more than when you believe your self-worth and your peace of mind and your happiness depend on the outcome. If you succeed, you know, great. If you fail, well, your happiness and self-worth are not at stake. So that's really important thing for people to remember.
0: Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I 100% agree with that. Well, Don, again, this has been fantastic. If folks want to find out more about you, uh, the Center for Spiritual Exchange, uh, pick up copies of the books, uh, what is a great place for them to go and and make those connections and and find those resources?
1: Uh, They can go to the uh, website, the Center's website, and uh, it's demello, D-E-M-E-L-L-O, Center. .com. It's a great website. It's interactive uh, with people. If they want to get the book, Stop Fixing Yourself, or um, Anthony DeMello's Masterpiece Awareness, they can get it at uh, at Amazon.
0: Outstanding. Well, again, Don, thank you very much for spending this time with uh, me and my listeners and sharing your story, sharing your knowledge, and just having this outstanding discussion that uh, I have no doubt uh, folks are going to hear and identify with and make some changes from, um, and, and go and take advantage of the, the resources that you have there at, uh, at the website. We'll get that in the links. But again, just thank you for spending this time with us and having this great conversation on the Responsible Leadership Podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Earl, for, for the work that you do and bringing these messages out to people. Well,
0: all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. And live in a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab, an Electric Cast production. We'll see you there. Electric Cast. Electric, acid. Electric, acid. Electric, acid. Electric acid.
1: Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing